We wanted to make sure our brand was was sharp and committed. I always said every demand generation touch is a brand touch. So if all we could do is spend money on generating demand, because that was the job in the early days, man, you're all about revenue and pipeline. Uh, it better be defining us as a company for our markets for the long run. Hey, it's Adam Schoenfeld. Welcome back to the Built in Seattle podcast, where Seattle's top entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders share their stories and their lessons from behind the scenes. If you like this show, you might also like my personal newsletter. It's not really news, but it's a letter from me to you. Each week, I share a lesson, a question, or an idea that I've picked up while learning from others. Subscribe at adaminseattle.com. On this episode, I met with Elisa Fink. Elisa was the CMO at Tableau from startup to IPO and beyond. She's now a board member and CMO advisor to many high growth companies. She talked about the characteristics of lasting teams, her mental models for startup marketing, and some of her lessons from over 30 years of leadership in high growth environments. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here with the one, the only, Elisa Fink. Hey, Elisa, how are you doing? Good, Adam. How are you? Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh my gosh, such a pleasure. Uh, we were just talking about, I had Kelly Wright on episode 24, I think, and uh, she's your old partner in crime back in the Tableau days. Yeah, she sure is. Uh, yep. And I still see her and we still talk and we still try to do things together now and then. So it's fun. It's interesting, actually, because you b- followed a similar path post Tableau, right? Going into board advising and board director roles. That's right. She uh, retired from Tableau maybe a year and a, or two years ahead of me, I think. And anyway, so she's been a great advisor, mentor for me. This is what's going to happen now. And this is what's you know, so she's been super helpful. And, nice. you know, that's Kelly. She's a giver and she's a helper and she just is incredible energy and passion for. So you had this long, successful career at Tableau. And I wanted to ask you the same opening question I asked Kelly, which is what was the most rewarding part? Gosh, that's a great question. When I look back on that period, I just, I'm so proud of building something from almost nothing. I just remember the early days in this really, what do they call it? Class B office space in a small team. And you just sort of one day your computer doesn't work. So you're on your hands and knees trying to switch plugs around. And the next day you're in a two day offsite and talking about strategic long-term planning. It just, and, and then the other thing, nobody knows who you are. And so I look back and I think, wow, as a team, working with Kelly and the co-founders and so many folks there, just building something from nothing, those early days and seeing it emerge and seeing these hours and weeks and months of hard work just come to fruition, especially when you see it in the eyes of customers and how they react and how they talk about it. It's just, that's what I just look back and go, wow, that was fun. That was amazing to be able to build something from almost nothing. That's incredible. It's such a great story here in Seattle and, and just in general, like the scale that it was at. But I love thinking about you guys in some class B office space, like fixing your own computer. <laughs> yes, totally. And the fluorescent blinking lights and the awful carpet. <laughs> just oh like, my goodness. Oh. Yeah, just so, I have fond memories of it. <laughs> yeah, humble beginnings. Very One much. Thing that's pretty incredible when I look at Tableau is that the leadership team stayed together for a really long time. When I look at the names on the S1, almost everybody was there for 8, 10, 12 plus years. Yes. Yes. What do you think were the conditions that made that happen? Well, I think a lot of things. So one thing, it was just higher for sure, higher, higher for culture, higher for fit. 
And then I remember Christian, our CEO co-founder, has told told me that one of the best pieces he've ever he's ever been given from a mentor of his at Stanford. And one piece of advice that I think about and often give people is, and I think he did this. I think he did this. He hired people whose best years were ahead of them. And, and that was true for everybody on that management team. I think back to Tom Walker, the CFO, who's basically the COO. Gosh, man, he was the CFO, never taken a company public, had been a controller, I think, but really kept incredibly clean books, had a policy in mind, would think about the future, just incredible. Chris Dolte, our head of product development, who was the inventor of the product, basically. Another guy was just like, wow, the vision that he had. And then, of course, Kelly, to go from like the first full-time sales rep to running a 1500 or whatever number of people. Salesforce, building a sales force of over a thousand people. So it was definitely a situation where our CEO, Christian, really just thoughtfully hired. In fact, I'll tell you one more thing. I remember he, when he hired my position, he mentioned to me that he had interviewed something like 30 candidates. And I told a friend of mine that, and she said, oh my God, I would never work for someone who couldn't make their mind up after 30 people. <laughs> But I actually think looking back, I think it was a pretty brilliant thing because I think he, as he got more interviews under his belt, he knew more and more what he wanted to look for, what he wanted to hire for. I think the hiring and the bringing together the right team was the key to longevity. And again, the fact that all of us in some way, shape or form had our best years ahead of us, I definitely feel like my best years were a tableau. So when it comes to me, he definitely hired I had my best years ahead of me. So I think that was a really smart thing that he did. Mm. Yeah. So he went against maybe the grain and bring in somebody who's done it before in exactly this situation and rather went for somebody who was ready to take that next step and yeah. be part of that growth. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely did. I know he did get a good mix because there were a few, several, several of the team that were young on the younger side, but a couple of us that were like 10, 12 years beyond that that sort of level. And so like for me, I'd been around marketing a long time. So I think when he brought me in, he was like, look, you're a utility player. I know you know all the elements because you've been you know, through a lot of experiences. So there, he did look to balance, I think, at the end of the day. But the fact is, no, none of us were like been there, done that public company scale at size kind of people. So I love that we're getting the dog barking in the background, by the way. And one of my kids might walk in and scream because that's the state of the world right now. So we just, totally. we deal I with that. Say, can you hear that? <laughs> we can hear it. And listeners, this is the, everybody's living in this world and we all have stuff going on in the background. I'm glad we don't do video on these because like I have kids walking in and out all the time. That's the way, that's the way of the world right now. Totally. <laughs> when you were in the moment when that team was forming in years one, two, three of you being together, was it apparent that this was going to be a decade plus uh, team or leadership team? Like how obvious was it when you were in the forming stages that it was going to have that kind of longevity? I think number one, like for me, I never had any doubt about the company. Like I had a ridiculous amount of belief. Just, wow, this thing is going to happen. I just no doubt about it. I remember my husband saying, are you sure we should move 3000 miles with our new child? Uh, to a city we don't know anybody. <laughs> and I was like, of course. And then I look back and I go, probably was more risky than I wanted to admit, but I believed. But I also think all of us had that level of belief. And then I think, again, I remember Christian saying to me one day, like a lot of people think a startup thing is like a three to five year thing. He said, it's not, it's a seven to 10 year thing. And I went, oh, okay, yeah, I see it. And so in my mind, when he set that expectation, I was like, 
yeah, I, I can do this seven to 10 years. Yeah. Okay. I get it. So I think that it just was good expectation setting. It was something we all passionately believed in and wanted to see through. And you, and then the other reality is the years just fly by. You're mm. just going at it. And all of a sudden you pick your head up and you're like, oh my God, what year is it? <laughs> We've been doing this how long already? So I think it was good expectation setting. It was something when you believe in something and you're passionate about it, you want to see it through. And then also just expectation, just like time just goes. Yeah. So it was, it never was frustrating to me. It never was frustrating. At first I thought, oh, seven to 10 years. I thought three to five. I thought startups were three to five, but yeah, he's right. It does take that time. Overnight successes. And some people might have said or seen Tableau as an overnight success. It was not an overnight success. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like from doing these interviews, it seems like there really aren't any overnight successes. (laughs) I'm curious, how did uh, Christian and the co-founders have that conversation about, hey, this is a long journey and we're thinking about this in the long term. Were there any things they did that were particularly helpful in framing it that way? Uh, Christian, he was a pretty very visionary guy, but also very data-driven. I think anybody in the early days of the company, maybe the first five, six years would tell you that he would, he was a student. He was studied things. And so he looked at other companies and he looked at their histories. And actually he had this data set that he had built of IPOs over the years. And he had the name of the company, their starting valuation, the year they were founded, the year they went public, their revenue over time. And he actually produced these incredible data stories for all of us, for the whole company that showed that, yeah, there are rocket ships, but there are just the steady growers and there's even the rocket ships take years. And so I think he just did a great job of telling that story but also proving that story through the data. And that was what Tableau was about, actually. It attracted a lot, mostly people who love data. So these this data-driven story of it takes a long time and it takes a village and it takes a lot of people and it's worth it. He had the data to show that. It was pretty, impre- it was, yeah, it was impressive. He showed it, he told you, he told the story, but then he showed the data and the data told the story. That's how I think he got people to realize, oh yeah, this is okay. Yeah, I, I, I can do this. Yeah. So I, it was impressive how he did that. I love how that fits so beautifully in with okay. it being a data company and having yeah. that sort of in Tableau. Yeah. Was he actually like pulling up a, a Tableau dashboard and be like, here's look the last 20 IPOs of similar companies and let me show you the yes. curve. And Yes. He, in fact, there was, um, when we started Tableau Public, there was a famous visualization he did about IPO, IPOs, just this sort of line chart that was incredible. But then he also did these other like scattergrams where he showed the number of companies that would, that started up a year and then five years later, who was still there? And then 10 years later, who was still there? And then you would just see how rare it was to actually take the journey we were on. And that also gave you like, wow, I'm at a special place. That also gave you this belief even more entrenched into your beliefs. It really showed like how unusual this was and how doing this together, how lucky we were, but also it could be done. And if you have a great product and great customers and you've got your eye on the ball with customers, some great things can happen. So it was, yeah, he really told some great stories. And I suspect that IPO visualization, if you search for it, you could still find it. It's pretty amazing. Oh, I'm (laughs) definitely doing that. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned that you had this massive conviction when you joined Tableau, but at that time, the company was very small. 
Can you talk about what was the state of the company at that time and how you were able to develop such yeah. conviction to move your family and yeah. jump on board? Yeah, it was. I was living in Washington D.C. I wasn't out on the West Coast at all, and I was. I wanted to move back to the West Coast, but I when I downloaded the product first, I read the job description and I was just like, "Wow, this sounds like a great culture and a great idea." But when I downloaded the product. I was like, oh my God, this is how I've wanted to work with my data, with data my whole career. And I'm not a trained data analyst. I just, over the years have learned like, you got it. It's just helpful. Have the facts, man. Look at data. It's super useful. It's super helpful. And I guess I like data. I'm a nerd that way, but I didn't know I was a nerd that way. Uh, I was an English major in college, not a math major, not a numbers person, not even a business person. So when I downloaded it and used it, I was like, wow, these guys are on to something. And then I just looked at the caliber of the people and the conversations we had. And I just felt they're doing the right thing. This is the right thing to do. I've been around data and marketing analytics most of my career and software and technology since the second job in my career. I just felt like this was it. This was something I was passionate about. I believed in it. I had the right mix of skills for the job that was at hand. And I just thought, uh, let's do it. Let's take this risk and let's do it. When do you get an opportunity like that? When it all comes together, when it's all, fi- when it's firing on all cylinders, I used to like to talk about Tableau that way, firing on all cylinders. Let's do it. Yeah. It's interesting. Like the convergence of all those different things, making it seem like a, a slam dunk. Yeah. It was like, it was a big market opportunity. They had an amazing product. The leadership team was amazing. The people I met, the team itself was amazing. There was a market that was just waiting to be cracked open and disrupted. At the time, data was not a thing, but I Mm. had been in and around data, as I mentioned. So I was able to like, God, why aren't people, more people, more companies making more of data? It always drove me crazy, actually. So when I saw what they were doing to make it easy and fast and beautiful, I was just like, this is so what the market needs. And I, I guess I had a lot of like that first time founder of their first company, it's about solving their problem for them. So in a lot of ways, I related to it as a worker, as a knowledge worker, like I related to the problem very much. So yeah, it mm-hmm. gave me a lot of conviction. I'm curious to fast forward here yeah. into your new adventures. Yeah. Having been through this great journey at Tableau, you've now transitioned to be a board director and advisor yeah. to lots of great companies. Yeah. I'm curious just what, what common lessons have stood out so far in that and maybe some that are surprising or non-obvious. Yeah, a couple things. Definitely, it just reiterates that it's so much about the people. It's so much about getting the right team together, doing great stuff and uh, together and working out your challenges or issues or getting the right people on. If you don't have the right people on, humanely getting the right people off, getting the wrong people off and getting, you know, bringing in the right people. So much about the people. Definitely still, you see that. And I believed that even before, but it just, even at at the board level, you can see that. Also, it's interesting to see how even little decisions that the board helps the, the, the executive team work through or gives advice on, all the technicalities of building a company, they really are reflective of big thoughts or directions, big directions that you're going to do to define yourself as a company. So it's be thoughtful because even little things sometimes, I'm not saying be analysis paralysis, but just be thoughtful that even little things or technicalities um, define you as a company. But then there are the big challenges too, that every company gets through, like the people that I've just talked about, your product direction, you're basically making bets every day. You want to make informed bets but you're making bets. Even when you're looking at financial structuring, certain kinds of structurings will lead to different kinds of possibilities in your future. So you really have to think through, what are we betting on here? And it's I love the idea that life is more like poker than chess because you don't have perfect information, but you have information. 
And this is a common analogy, but it's really true. And being at the board level, you're just trying to help. Okay, let's play the best hand. And what's likely, what's that likely out there? So it's just, it's so interesting to just um, see that side of it. And I, and you're not in the nitty gritty details. So you can almost see a higher level perspective. You can take almost a greater perspective or a more, a wider perspective that really you can filter out the noise. And sometimes when you're in it as an operator every day, the noise gets pretty loud. (laughs) So that's been super interesting to see like how boards help CEOs and executive teams filter out noise and take the broader, bigger perspective and realize, hey, we're what's the information that matters? What if we take this bet, what are we betting on? And what are we likely going to lose if it doesn't go our way? So it's been really fun and interesting to see those kinds of problems and that approach to problem solving. Yeah, what do you think operators can learn from that dynamic of being able to get up to that level and ask those questions and get out of the noise? Uh, so much as it's in fact, it's so interesting is on a board, there are typically the money people and the operators. And so what I love about the money people is that they've seen a, not a million, but a bunch of examples of companies. They've seen lots of examples. So they have a lot of data in their heads and experiences. That's just lots of examples, not super deep, but lots of examples. Whereas the operators tend to be very deep and specialized in a few companies or whatever. And so it's a really interesting balance of those people. So as an operator, being able to see more broadly and see, hear about a lot of different kinds of companies at the detail level, at the particularly financial structurings and how that affects strategy is really interesting. I would encourage every operator, if your company is open to you serving on a board, it's a very instructive thing. And I've heard this and it didn't happen to me, but serving as a board member when you're an operator is a very useful thing to do. It'll make you a better operator. I've heard that. And I believe that. It didn't happen in my career, but nonetheless, I think if you had that opportunity, it's something worth doing. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I love what you're saying about some of these lessons, so much about the people, how the little decisions reflect your bigger Mm -hmm. thoughts. I wanted to click down on it being so much about the people and ask you, maybe this is a funny way of getting at it. If, If you were advising me and I started a company and I have a big idea and I have some funding and I'm like getting ready to build out the leadership team. Yeah. How do you get to that? How would you start getting to that sort of ideal formation of that leadership team, right? Now that you've experienced it at Tableau and you've started to see it at these boards, what do you think the path actually looks like to getting there? Oh, yeah. For sure, you've got to have your your technical founder, your technical talent, and your like vision talent or your business talent. I think that's I think that's the, the roots, right? You got to have both sides of that. You got to have a market. You got to know how you're going to approach that market. You got to go talk to people about it. But then you got to have a great idea and a great product and great ability to execute against that idea and against that product idea. So I think those are obviously the, the big ones. I think the next thing is probably sales, getting some people in to help lay down groundwork in terms of having conversations. A lot of times the CEO is the first sales rep, which totally, you know, that's kind of what happened. That's why Kelly is technically the first sales rep. I always say Kelly's the first full-time sales rep because a lot of selling. (laughs) Christian did a lot of selling. Right. (laughs) So I think that's right. And of course, you got to then be thinking about how you operate your business, like the underpinnings of how we're going to collect revenue, how we're going to bill people, how we're going to invoice people. Mm -hmm. And then I think at the same time, it's okay, but we need to execute some marketing outgoing stuff. We got to be talking to customers. We got to be talking to the market. So you start to just groundswell bill up. 
build up. Now you don't need like executive level talent for every one of those things at the very beginning. I don't think that's necessary. I think uh, particularly in the marketing arena, even the sales arena, you hire a, uh, you don't need to hire your chief revenue officer who's going to scale you to whatever. You, it, Kelly Wright's journey as the first full-time sales rep at Tableau all the way to basically its chief revenue officer is pretty unusual. So uh, I think at the beginning, you can look for some great seniorish, not super senior, but talented people that can help you. And then as you get bigger, as you start to scale, you bring in additional people. Like for me, for example, at Tableau, when I joined, there were two people in marketing. They were doing running basic programs. And so for me, I, when I joined at about 5 million in revenue, that was the time when we needed to start thinking more systematically, more regularly, more predictably about how many leads we could generate, how much demand we could generate. Could we get the customers in conversation? What was our positioning going to be? What was our brand going to be defined as? We start thinking about those things. That might not be the first 5 million, but after five, you might be starting to think like that. Got it. So you can, if I'm hearing it, you can have, you have the founding team and the, the basic building blocks. Then you start to think about those functional areas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the you don't necessarily need to go for the leader, but you can start to build that out. Yeah. If you're building the team first before you hire the leader, how much does that then influence the kind of leader that you get? And in your own calculus, were you looking at, oh, what's the start of the seed of this marketing team and what, how do they operate? And yeah. did that, how did that play out in, in sort of your decision? to? to well, make? that's a great question. For sure, personality-wise, you're looking for scrappy, smart, fast learners. If you can work smart and work hard and you can learn fast, man, that's people you want to hire, even if you don't have all the skills because things change. But as I was thinking about the team itself, I was very fortunate that the previous um, person who had run, done some other things too, had hired a really smart, dedicated person who was just like very results oriented. She was very demand generation oriented. And then he had also brought in a guy who was really like systems oriented. What are the marketing technology background are we going to uh, start to build or things that even just to run a webinar takes a certain amount of systems to it. You want to do it well, you want to do it professionally. So we had this nice combination of demand oriented kind of person who was a executor. And then we had a person who was like, let me build the foundation for that to be able to execute that well. And so I think between the three of us, I was uh, both of those, not both of those, but knew enough about both of those, but also very, you know, content oriented and strategy oriented and brand oriented. It was a good three person team at the beginning. And then we just started layering people in to bring us make us smarter, make us better, make us go faster. We brought in a couple of junior people, I think, to again, build up those demand gen programs. But we also pretty early on brought in an incredible product marketer. In fact, she's still at Tableau. She works actually in the development organization now. And uh, she was an incredible product marketer. And believe it or not, I think our next hire after that was a designer. That's how important we thought our brand was. We wanted to make sure our brand was, was sharp and committed. I always said every demand generation touch is a brand touch. So if all we could do is spend money on generating demand, because that was the job in the early days, man, you're all about revenue and pipeline. Uh, it better be defining us as a company for our markets for the long run. So it was fun. It was just really fun to layer in the right people. And then you start thinking about managers and leaders and groups within your team, how they're going to function and cross-function. As you scale, it just you start to see these themes emerge. And the key is to stay a little ahead of those themes so that you're ready to hire the right people before everything breaks. When everything starts bending... <laughs> is when you want to get all over it. You can't do everything all the time super fast. One of the things I have seen in some of the advising I'm doing is sometimes CMOs will choose to be like, I'm going to build an infrastructure, but it's not good enough to just build an infrastructure for six months. You got to be generating demand. 
On the other hand, you can't just be like demand, 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 because you got to scale. Mm -hmm. So you, when things start bending, your current processes and systems start bending, that's time to like, okay, guys, what worked for us in the past ain't working anymore. We got to, we got to reinvent. We got to reinvent. And so you go through multiple phases of reinvention and it's fun. It's fun to bend, to bend and build. I enjoy that building part of it a lot. I think your quote of every demand touch must be a brand touch is probably a great place to kind of transition click down more on marketing because mm -hmm. I, I think my listeners would be pretty mad if we didn't drill into startup marketing a little bit more with yeah. you. Yeah. What, tell me how that actually shows up or how it should show up. Like what guardrails do you put in place to make sure that a demand touch is a brand touch and where do people get lost in that where a demand touch is maybe negative to the brand? Yeah, it can be. So two things is if you don't define your brand well, then people working on your marketing efforts are just not going to know where to go. They're not going to know the voice. They're not going to know the look, the feel. Um, and the look and the feel and the emotion of your brand, even in very technical content or fairly technical content, can be super, super important, super the voice, particularly how you talk to your customers and the feelings that you create is super important. So you have to define that. In fact, when I joined the company, I remember Christian offered me the job in like mid-June and I was just about to adopt our daughter. I was going to China for three or four weeks and then I had to move 3,000 miles. I said, I think I can be there by August, mid-August. And he says, okay, but you better show up because we've got to, you've got to lead a project to redefine the brand and we got a product to launch and a website to build all by November. <laughs> we did it. Defining that brand at the very beginning like that, when we were really putting uh, more dollars into who we are, were as a company, as our image and our voice of how, who we were going to be, was a big deal. And we were pretty um, firm about what we stood for. Now, it evolved. Of course, it evolved over time, even from the very first days of it, it kept changing. But we were pretty clear about what our mission is. Uh, and that was a company mission. But how we were going to execute that mission or show that mission to the world. So that's super super important part of it. It really helps people with where to, what to say, how to say it, where to go, how to get the programs running, all that good stuff. So that was, I think really defining your brand is really critical. Okay. I want to go way into the weeds on this for yeah. at least a second, yeah. it, which is, I think a lot of people understand the kind of design part of the brand and, and maybe the voice to some extent, but the part that at least I, I latched onto when you were saying that, and I'm not sure I totally understand is the feelings part, the what you want people to feel. Yeah. And I'm really curious, like in defining the brand, how do you pull that out? Yeah. And then what's the asset? What's the document or the thing that you yeah. create so that the company uh, knows that's what you want the brand to be in terms of the, that yeah. dimension? That's such a great question because it's a hard thing, but we did define it. We did. And actually we did it at the executive level, our CEO, Christian, was very involved in, in this project we had where we wanted people to come away with these certain feelings after using Tableau or using Tableau. We wanted them to, one of the words I always, one of the things I always said is I, I wanted people to feel like a sense of achievement and pride that, wow, look what I did. Look what I could do. So that was something that we were always very like achievement. There's an achievement when you do something with data that is very frustrating for a lot of people to work with data, but we wanted them to feel achievement. We also wanted them, of course, to feel delight. That was a big deal. And then I think we also wanted them to feel connected, that they had other people around them that they could go to and talk to. And, and the sense of belonging was another thing that we really fostered, that you belong to this community. You belong to people like you. There are people like you out there. So the whole idea of community was something very early on. I even like 
before I joined the company, when I did my homework, I was like, wow, this company can have an incredible community. And so to me, that was just a, tri- a driving force from our, in our marketing and all our efforts from the very beginning for me. So that sent, those are the feelings. And so we, there were many others, like we wanted people to walk away feeling like they'd done seen and done something beautiful. Like beauty was a thing we really wanted people to feel. We wanted people to feel like, wow, that was easy. That sense of not just achievement, but that it was a lot easier and I could go home and I could do things. I could do more for my company. This idea that I'm empowered and that feeling of being empowered was another uh, set of words. So we had put, documented all these actually in a PowerPoint <laughs> where we had the word and described what that felt like and what it looked like. And so that became part of our brand guidelines, not just the colors and the fonts and all that stuff, but the feelings, the words, the kind of language we would use. And then when we would onboard people into the marketing team, we'd run a marketing onboarding. We would have a pretty significant amount of time dedicated toward the brand, what it stood for and how to evoke the kind of feelings we wanted them uh, wanted to be evoked around our brand through the content, through the look and feel, through the kind of things we would do and the kind of things we wouldn't do. Another feeling, another thing we wanted people to walk away with is a sense of fun. So we were a team and a group that wanted to have fun because that was part of the brand too. And you you could see it in Tableau's brand with the lowercase fonts, lots of colors in the logo. This was going to be not a company that yelled at you with stern, like we're serious, but a company that was your friend <laughs> that was going to be friendly. So and, and the then t-shirts. I remember the t-shirts. What's that? I remember what? the t-shirts were fun. What was yeah. your favorite t-shirt? Oh my God. I have so many of them and I've got this, I've got so many of them. I love them. I don't know. I can remember the ones that I remember I had a hand in my pad or yours for our iPad product launch. And we had a Tableau version six and we had t-shirts that were the joy of six. And we had a lot of innuendo around that. Talk. I didn't invent this one, but talk data to me. One of my favorites. And then party with your data. That was not me. That was pre my dates, pre my team. But that's a great one. Party with your data. That was the attitude. Have fun with your data and accomplish something and, and, and feel that sense of achievement. It can be fun and enjoyable. And that's really what Tableau uh, strived for. It's amazing that all these years later, you're still able to just rattle off the brand feelings that you put in that definition. Yeah. Is that a, a function of I might be reading between the lines that you were repeating that a lot to the team and to the market. And that was a mantra of yours or how has that become so ingrained? Yeah, I think so. I also think Adam and I don't know if this will sound a little self-serving or not, but I also believe, and I, I, a lot of times the people you hire and the personalities they bring shape a lot of who your company, especially in the early days, a lot of who your company will be or the brand. And so I think a lot of those things are things that are values of mine, having fun, feeling things, you know, feeling sense of achievement, being connected. Those are things that I value. And I think it was easy for me to help bring those values out or those um, attributes out in the Tableau brand because I valued them and I try to aspire to them. So I think also too, I'm a big believer in make it natural. When you have to be inauthentic and you can't be yourself at work, when you have to be somebody different, that takes work. So I always wanted to hire people who could, or build an environment where people could be themselves, bring their full selves and be authentic and not worry about being different. So for me, I think the Tableau brand is a lot of attributes and qualities that I aspire to. So it was easy for me to espouse those and know, in fact, I how many times I sat in meetings where we're looking at content or some uh, campaign or some marketing initiative and me saying, that's not really on brand. I don't think that's what we'd say. And people would say, why? And I'd be like, 
let me think about how to express this. And here's why I don't think it's part of the brand or that doesn't seem on brand. Not that everything I did was on brand. I had a lot of misfires too, but I think when it's um, natural to you and it's, that makes it easier. So I encourage companies to think about the people that they're hiring, especially in the early days and how they will shape the culture and the culture shapes the brand and the brand shapes the culture. It's all connected. So think about that too. Are these people that you look at and go, we have shared values. We have shared values around this product. We have shared values around what we're, this company is going to stand for. It's going to make brand definition and execution throughout your entire company so much easier. That's I love that story. I want to ask you, changing gears a little bit, just mm-hmm. I, I get this question a lot. Maybe this is my uh, sample bias, but when I'm meeting with early stage founders, a lot of times they're like, what really is marketing? Like maybe they're a technical founder or they're a business founder, but they haven't really thought about what is marketing in, in, a, in a startup. How do you answer that question and how do you break it down? It's a good question. And the one thing I say, especially when they're like, do we need marketing or not? I'll be like, let's be clear. Whether or not you think you're doing marketing or you need it or not, you are and you do. You are doing marketing. Even if you don't have an official person or department, you are still doing marketing one way or another. I was thinking about this the other day as a poor analogy, maybe for a founder, but like Elon Musk and Tesla, I think they fired all their public relations people. But guess what? Even without a PR team, they're still doing PR. It's, you still, so there's the function of marketing with a capital M, and then there's the you're doing marketing with the little M. So really, you should be thinking about it because marketing is your strategy and it's your activities about defining who you want the market to see you as. It's your brand. It's building awareness of that brand. It's starting conversations with your prospects as in demand generation, it's surrounding those conversations with meaningful content and information. And, and it's engaging people. It's engaging your customers for long-term value. So if you want to be in control of that, <clears throat> or you want to make that happen faster, then you probably need someone at the helm, somebody driving marketing, because it's something you've got to think about. Because whether you're doing marketing or not, you're doing marketing. Now, whether you're doing it well or not, or as fast as you want, or on the path you want, or the trajectory you want, that's another question. So not every company needs marketing as early as the next company or as late or whatever, but you probably need to think about marketing as a thing, even if you choose not to bring it in super early. So when a startup decides that they want to bring in that marketing leader, maybe they have some people in and they're like, they're growing the function. What do you think is the difference between kind of a good CMO and a great CMO? Oh, that's a great question. I guess I'd say good CMO listens. Good CMO listens. He or she listens to the market, listens to sales, listens to executives, listens to customers. But a great CMO will take that listening and learn from it and not just learn from it, but act on it. I think that's a big difference. It's like you really have to be listening and learning and then acting on it. And it's the days you're good or when you're listening and learning, but the days you're great or when you listen, you've learned and you're doing something about it. And I'm not saying that you can be good or great every day. If you think about listening, learning, and then acting, that's a good way to think about how you can change, how you can accelerate your company's growth and how you can get them or get your company, get yourself to where you want to be is listen, learn, and act. What really matters in the transition from listening to action in your mind, especially in the marketing function, is it is it speed? Is it accuracy? Is it what's the right way to think about going from a good listener to taking action? I think that's a great question. I think like when you first learn some new knowledge, you first listen and you hear something, you're like, wow, what? It takes some repetition, I think, to take it in. And so I think speed sometimes is a function of I've heard this before. 
I think this is knowledge. I think I should act on it. So I don't necessarily say speed because sometimes you hear something and you need to hear it again. And you need to talk to another customer or an analyst or your CEO or your salespeople, whatever. I guess it's, I guess I'd say it's either it's accuracy or it's reflection and seeing, listen, learning and turning that into knowledge that you or experience or judgment that then will help you make the right choices about your actions. I think I like to talk about in the realm of data in particular, but listening and learning is about observations, right? That's data. It's really taking that data, those observations, and being able to gather them together, improve your judgment or your thoughts about something, and then making the right decisions. So I guess I'd say it's accuracy, but I don't want to say analysis paralysis kind of thing. It's don't be, you don't have to be perfect because sometimes the action itself not sometimes, a lot of time the action itself is going to teach you something else. It's getting enough listening and learning and knowledge and judgment to be confident to make a decision to take an action, knowing that you'll probably need to modify that action. And so I'm a big fan of rapid iterative cycles of development, as opposed to let's make sure we have the perfect plan and take eight months to get it in market. I'd rather take two months in a small way to market and learn something. But I've listened, I've learned, I feel like I've made the right the right choices. I have the right judgment to make a decision at this point. Let's take a small action or a medium-sized action and learn from that and so on. So I guess it's, yeah, it's accuracy, but not to the point where it makes you stop thinking, makes you stop thinking or stop doing, I should say. Get out there and do something because you'll learn a lot from that action too. It makes me think a little bit of the Charlie Munger thing. He talks about swinging at the fat pitch. You're not going to hit the fat pitch every time, but that's the yeah. one you swing at. And that's yeah. what raises your batting average. Yeah. I connected the dot on that one a little bit, whether yeah, that's good. the right yeah, way. That's, that's great. That's a great connection. I got to remember that one. <laughs> Let's wrap this up with the supersonic six. Uh huh. Cool. Number one, how much coffee do you drink? If I don't have the 16 ounces in the morning, it's decaf. I don't have a good day, even though it's decaf. So I only drink about two cups or one large, <laughs> but I got to have it. Number two, what's one Seattle company that you're following or studying right now? I'm on the board of Cumulo. So of course, Cumulo. (laughs) Yeah, serious story there. That's been. Number three, who's one Seattle person that you're following or learning from right now? Great question. I really appreciate some of the folks at Madrona, like Matt and Steve and Tim. But one person that's really been interesting to me lately is Anita Crofts at UW. She's at the at the communication school. She just impressed me with how she manages her role as a leader, how she runs the program and interacts with people. And also recently how she's navigated herself into a new role that really gives her room to do uh, the things she really loves and makes the most of her talents. So she's just a high integrity person who I just admire the way she operates. Number four, what's one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? Ah, city government. I think city government. Yeah. Number five, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 20-year-old self? Oh, God. Yeah. To be 20 again. (laughs) I'd say, hey, jump in. Take risks. Pursue your passions. Everyone doesn't know more than you all the time. Just get in there. But at the same time, be patient. It's going to happen. You're going to build this massive experiences and know-how that's going to help you move through your career. So, you know, Elisa, be patient, but at the same time, jump in and take risks. (laughs) Number six, what's one thing that you want listeners to go do or take a look at anything this community can do to help you? 
or something you would love to have their attention on? Yeah, I'd love for them to have their attention on an organization uh, called Salmon Safe. It's salmonsafe.org. It's an organization I'm on the board of that helps um, protect the Pacific Northwest watersheds. Because if it's healthy for salmon, then it's healthy for the rest of us, our whole agricultural train, but all of us. And so they're doing a ton of new work in, in Seattle, in particular around office development and development. And I think if you could go take a look at their website and see how you could get involved, that would be terrific because they're really great organization making a lot of great things happen. Geez, you're involved in a lot of cool things, Elisa. I really had a great time with this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to welcome me today. Thank you. What a pleasure. It's great. I I really appreciate it. It's good to see you. Hey, it's Adam again. Quick note before you go. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show as much as I am enjoying making it. If you do like it, please leave a rating or a review. That would help other people find it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have any feedback, send me an email, adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com. No underscores, no periods, just adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com.